You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer, as well as other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer where you can get access to exclusive B-roll episodes, early access to episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, uh, commentary tracks, and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, that is spread across all three of the podcasts that I do. Uh, for more information and to sign up on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Okay, so today on the show, I'm going to be discussing One More Pallbearer, which is the 17th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on January 12th, 1962. And as always, I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science, fi- science Fiction Theater, Season 1, Episode 25, titled The Human Equation. And uh, just so you guys know, The Human Equation is available currently on YouTube and on Daily Motion. I'll have a link in the show notes, so if you want to check that out and then give us a, give my review there a listen, uh, feel free to do that. But just so you know, it is available out there. And of course, The Twilight Zone is available to stream on Paramount Plus and is available on physical media. So, um, I don't have much in the way of, um, uh, of new business or anything, but, uh, I will say that, um, friends of the show, Tanana Reevdu and Stephen Barnes do have a podcast, um, that I haven't gotten a chance to listen to yet, but they have a, uh, podcast that I just, um, kind of recently found. It is Life Writing Podcast, uh, Write for Your Life. Authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do and guests on writing, the writer's life, Hollywood, the work, family, balance, and relationships, the tools writers need to make themselves the heroes, her- uh, heroines of their own story. Uh, so yeah, so check that out. They have um, Their most recent episode was all about uh, Jordan Peele's Nope which just recently came out, and one of their first episodes, I think it's the fourth episode of the podcast uh, from January, is all about uh, their experience on uh, writing for the Twilight Zone revival. So check that out. It's uh, the podcast is, let me see if they have like a homepage or anything, but uh, the podcast is Life Writing Podcast. It's uh, distributed through by, wow, distributed through Buzzsprout. Uh, so check that out. Life writing, right for your life. Uh, and congrats to Tanana Reeve and Steven for, uh, for their podcast and everything. And I'm excited to, uh, check it out. Okay. So this episode, I'm very excited to talk about this. Um, it is one more pallbearer. And, um, as I usually do, I'm going to go through all of the plot summary and everything. So be prepared for that. But before I do that, I'm going to share what I knew about the episode before I watched it for the first time. So I knew nothing. Um, The title kind of gave me the impression that this was going to be maybe a period piece episode and maybe it had to do with like a group of settlers 
experiencing a plague of some kind or uh, mass quantities of loss of life in their ranks, kind of similar to, um, oh God, I can't, a uh, hundred yards over the rim, that kind of thing. Um, but I was way off, obviously. Um, and I just kind of thought that it had something to do with maybe there were several people in a community that were dying off one by one, um, necessitating for one more pallbearer. Um, but that was not the case. I also thought kind of as a Hail Mary in my notes, I put, or maybe a ghost story of some kind, uh, which it's neither, neither of those. And what was interesting about it is I hadn't really heard anything about this episode. I wasn't aware of anything in terms, well, obviously, cause I just read my, what I knew before, but like, this is an episode that this feels like as I get through my review, um, it feels like the type of episode that should have kind of a, um, it, it feels like it should have a, of a, a following or of a, a fandom surrounding it. It feels like, it feels like maybe not, maybe not a Monsters are Due on Maple Street or maybe not an obsolete man level of episode, but it seems like the type of episode that should permeate pop culture, but it hasn't really gotten under, uh, under my radar. Um, so I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, so let me get into the, the review and everything. So, uh, as usual, I'm going to be reading the plot summary courtesy of the Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Um, by the way, Martin Grahams Jr. has a ton of other books out there about different, uh, different, uh, anthology series. Like he has one for way out. He has one for science fiction theater. Um, it's a, it, they're real, really good resources and interesting kind of pieces of history of television. So I recommend them. But anyway, um, here's my, here's the plot summary courtesy of Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic. Once again, going to be spoiling the entire episode. So fair warning, but here we go. Wealthy industrialist Paul Radin finds or funds the construction of a fake underground bomb shelter that, for all intents and purposes, it is is designed to fool anyone who hears the fake sound effects and sees the footage of on the view screen. Radin invites three people from whom he feels he unjustly suffered indignities in the past. Hawthorne, his former colonel in the war, was responsible for Radin's court-martial, stripping him of his rank and dishonorably discharging him. Mrs. Langford, a former, a former high school teacher, flunked Raiden for cheating and humili humiliated him in front of an entire class. Mr. Hughes, a reverend, once condemned Raiden because the multimillionaire drove a young girl to suicide to achieve his goals. After Raiden's history lesson and an exchange of opinions, the multimillionaire offers them sanctuary in his shelter in exchange for their un uncondition unconditional apology. <laughs> But none of the guests will oblige. Instead, they prefer to head for the surface to be with their loved ones. Upset because he did not he did not receive the apology he expected, Raiden's mind snaps, believing that the hydrogen bomb has dropped. He now lives in a fantasy world where he is the sole occupant. Starring as Paul Radin in One More Paul Bearer is Joseph Wiseman. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in one episode of Night Gallery in 1970. And also previous to this, he appeared in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow. 
he was also the titular character in the first James Bond movie, Dr. No, in 1962. And he also appeared in the movie Buck Rogers in the 25th century, as well as two episodes in the TV series Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Um, and I really liked his performance in this, which we'll get to in the in the episode. Um uh, co-starring as Mrs. Langsford is Catherine Squire. This is her first of two Twilight Zone uh, episodes. Next we'll see from her is in season four's premiere episode in his uh, image. And as Colonel Hawthorne is Trevor Bardet. Uh, this was his only episode of the Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in the movie The Rack in 1956, uh, which was written by Serling. And rounding out the cast is... Uh, Gage Clark as Reverend Hughes. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in a few Rod Serling scripted works. Uh, two episodes of Lutz Video Theater, um, which were The Hill and Mr. Finchley versus The Bomb. And he also appeared in an episode of Craft Theater that Serling wrote titled Old MacDonald Had a Curve. Um, so writer for this episode was Rod Serling and director was Lamont Johnson, who we just saw his work last week too. Uh, this was his fourth of eight total Twilight Zone episodes. So we've reached the halfway point with Lamont Johnson's work on the, on the Twilight Zone. Uh, previously we saw his work in last week's Nothing in the Dark and next we'll see him in, or his work in a few weeks in Kick the Can. So that is the uh, cast and credits and everything for One More Pallbearer. So I'm going to go ahead and go into my review of the episode. Um, so we open on this kind of, I guess innocuous would be the word, um, fountain display. Which, honestly, like this opening scene doesn't really... I don't know. It doesn't really do much for me because it's it's really only... It really only serves as... Um, the kind of image that we are going to be focused on, um, uh, at the end of the episode to kind of take us out of the, um, post-apocalyptic, you know, nuclear war, um, wasteland imagery into the, into the real life imagery, which is fine, but I don't know. It's, it's kind of a weird, uh, thing to focus on, I guess. But, um, we see that the building is called has has radon radon has radon on it uh written on it so that's our first hint that there's you know not something amiss or anything but we know that like that's a name so our first image of paul radon is is pretty interesting because we see uh the camera is this top down view of the elevator as he's going down to the corridor that leads to the shelter and like in my notes, uh, I don't know, like I put, is this symbolizing Mr. Raiden's descent into madness? Uh, but no, it's nothing that direct or on the nose or anything like that. It's just, I guess it, it's kind of interesting because it's not, it's not, the camera isn't positioned inside the elevator. It's above the elevator on the exterior. So we see just the top of the elevator on the exterior. And I don't know if there's any kind of symbolic meaning behind that or anything, but um, it's, it's just an interesting kind of thing. So he goes into the shelter and we get a cameo, I guess what you would call it of, um, the guy who played the subaltern in the obsolete man. I forgive me. I don't have his name here, but he plays an electrician, an electrician who is getting, um, everything set up for Raiden 
in the bomb shelter and he's kind of complimenting him he's kind of being like oh yeah well you know those sound effects are pretty crazy you know people are going to believe that you know there's a bomb and everything that sounds really realistic and then he's like yeah that's the point and he's kind of like getting like the guy asks him like oh you you want people to think that like you're you're playing a prank and he's like well yeah it's kind of a kind of a practical joke um, he even kind of shows off or tests the um, video display and we see a nuclear bomb detonating in New York City. Um, and he even he even brags. He says that and, and the bragging kind of seems a little bit. I don't know. It, it seems it, it is very obviously it's very much expository. It's needed for the audience to know what's going on and everything. But it also doesn't really seem like it's much in his character to brag or maybe it is I'm kind of back and forth on that because him just kind of you know bragging to this electrician like the kind of the whole point of this episode and I'll be gushing over it throughout the throughout this review but the whole kind of main point of the episode is that Paul Radin is a narcissistic egotistical um just villain villain character and I don't think that he, well, maybe he would, because I'm I'm not sure, I'm torn on this because I'm not sure if he would necessarily be a person who would want to kind of congratulate himself or, or brag about like how the expense and everything. But on the other hand, I do kind of think that that kind of tracks with his personality type as depicted in the episode, because he is very much self-centered. He's very much focused on him. And that's kind of the whole thing. So maybe he he's wanting these accolades. He's wanting, you know, people to know. Like he's he's very insecure and in wanting uh, to know what. Uh, like he wants people to know his accomplishments. Um, yeah. So I don't know. But anyway, so he brags about it. He's like, yeah, by my estimation, this is the best designed bomb shelter in existence. Um, and it's kind of a practical joke. Um, and so he says that he's invited three people to join him, and we. Like, my thought is, well, he says that he wants to convince them that a bomb has gone off. So my thought at this point is that I was wondering if this episode was going to become kind of a mixture of the shelter and the silence, uh, meaning that obviously it would be um, a potential nuclear holocaust and some kind of wager. I kind of thought that Raiden was going to have like some kind of wager at the at the center of it. I'm glad that he didn't because it, this whole like revenge thing that completely blows up in his face is no pun intended is absolutely fantastic. Um but I think that my my thought about it being like oh maybe it's a mix of these two episodes I think I was still kind of coming down off of uh, nothing in the dark, which at the end of the day really did feel like kind of a rehash of one for the angels, but with some differences here and there, um, maybe a mix of one for the angels. And, um, was it a nice place to visit? I think, um, I don't know, but anyway, um, or maybe not, I don't know. So anyway, (laughs) um, at this point though, if that was the idea, like at that point, as I'm, as I'm learning what this episode is, I was thinking, yeah, I kind of like this idea, this eccentric millionaire putting on this show for some reason. And I was curious what what that reason was going to be and and how it was going to kind of play out. So I was very much intrigued from this opening um, opening moment and everything. And as I kind of rewatched it and uh, found myself really um, 
kind of analyzing it on repeat viewings, I was really impressed. Um, because this prologue, this whole prologue, um, again, I'm, I mentioned before, I was surprised that I didn't know more about this episode as a whole, because it seems like this is like a premium prologue for a strong episode. Um, and I don't know what the kind of consensus is with Twilight Zone fans in regards to the, the one more Paul Bear. Uh, but I was, I was impressed from the jump. I was very intrigued and very, uh, very impressed. And I think that that is very much due to the fact that this is, again, such an intriguing prologue. Um, because by showing us the machinations of Raiden, or Raiden, um, up front, like showing us that he is doing this to convince people for some reason that a bomb has gone off, that the worst possible scenario in human existence at that point could, like, has occurred, knowing that we, knowing what we know going into this after this prologue, we just know that he is doing this for some reason. And that makes the kind of surprise factor of the episode kind of default to what his motivations are. And so the surprise factor is, is lies in the motivations of the character. And that opens the door to the episode being this really spectacular case study in narcissism and egotism and living with just a complete lack of accountability or humility. Um, and it's fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, after this introductory scene, we get, uh, an elevator door that opens on Mr. Rod Serling coming on screen to deliver the opening narration, which I will play right now. What you have just looked at takes place 300 feet underground beneath the basement of a New York City skyscraper. It's owned and lived in by one Paul Radin. Mr. Radin is rich, eccentric, and single-minded. How rich we can already perceive, how eccentric and single-minded we shall see in a moment. Because all of you have just entered the Twilight Zone. All right, so after the opening narration, we get the three guests arriving. Arriving, sorry, my voice cracked. Um... And it's very ominous. It's very ominous and kind of eerie because they're kind of beckoned into the bomb shelter by the disembodied voice of Raiden through an intercom. And as they go in, first of all, the uh, the door just opens on its own. And so that's kind of ominous too. And they walk in and the lighting of that room is just really cool the way that it's introduced, uh, the way that they're introduced into the um, scene or into the room because each light lights up or each seat lights up individually for each one as Raiden is talking. And as it's just this ominous disembodied voice and these lights coming on, um, after that we get the reveal that like the lights come on, on Raiden's seat and he's in the room and he has the intercom right there. Like, that was such an interesting thing. And I don't know, I don't know how much of this is like intentional or if it's something that I'm reading into it, but there are a couple of things about that that I find really interesting. 
One is that it's clearly a way for him to assert dominance and control over over his guests um, just from the outset. Like he is wanting to demonstrate that he is in control of them and they are there because of him and, and they're going to listen to him and everything. Um, also, and this is this is such a stretch, but I'm kind of curious if it's intentional, but I kind of feel like this this like slow reveal of the lights of the lights on each seat as they come in that that has like a little bit of a subtext and maybe a little bit of a god uh, a god complex like kind of like let there be light in this room where it's just going to be the four of us and everything um and i'm in control of it but also when his seat is lit up and we see him i kind of think it's funny and I think that this is completely intentional. And I thought that this was an incredibly nice detail. Um, when his when his seat is lit up and we see him, we see him put the intercom away. He, he puts the microphone away. And that is so, that is just such a great small detail to, uh, to what the episode is going to be. Because... He feels like he's in control. He feels like he has power over these people. He feels like that he has been slighted by these people. And he has this grand plan to get them to beg his forgiveness and everything and to assert his dominance over them and everything. But he it it's such a it's such a it's such a small a small detail that like the timing is just slightly off that when his light comes on, he has to put the, put the thing away. Um, and everything, it's just, it, it kind of, it kind of plays into like him as a petulant child and as someone who is just incredibly ego driven and, and completely shameless. Um, and I don't know, I, I just thought that that was a really nice detail. So we are introduced to the guests, Colonel Hawthorne, Mr. Hughes, Mrs. Langsford, and right from the jump, Mr. Hughes, the Reverend, recognizes him, and that's a little bit more expository dialogue for us, saying, oh yeah, you're the, mil- the, you're the millionaire, you're Paul Radin, cool. Um, and, then, uh, and then I think Paul motions over to Colonel Hawthorne, and he's like, hey, do you remember me too? Uh, and Hawthorne says like, oh yeah, yeah, you served under me. So he, the, the kind of dialogue that goes back and forth between them is that it's revealed that, um, Hawthorne had Raiden court-martialed because Raiden refused to lead a charge on a hill and he, it, it cost them like half of, like half. I don't know, half a platoon of lives, I think. Um, and so Raiden was dishonorably discharged um, and disciplined and everything. And Hawthorne just says point blank. He says, I mean, if I had been responsible for this, uh, for the sentencing, you would have been shot. <laughs> and uh, I kind of like the reaction that, that Raiden gives. He's, it kind of has this like smug, like, yeah, I bet you would, because you're out for me. Everyone's out for me. Like, that's the subtext of what his reaction is. Like, the world is out for me, and I'm, I should be respected, and that's why I'm a multimillionaire and everything. Um, I'm really, I'm really excited to dig into that character (laughs) in this, in this episode. Um, and then we get the, like, the, uh, he looks over to Mrs. Langsford, 
And she says, of course, I, I remember you. I taught you in high school. And at that point, I'm like, okay, this is clearly some kind of revenge plot. And I'm kind of curious what, what's going on. Like I'm, I'm into it. I'm interested and I'm intrigued and I'm, I'm, I'm good for it. Um, so she explains that she flunked him or, uh, I think he explains that you've, yeah, he explains you flunked me and you brought me in front of the whole class and you humiliated me. And I do have just a quick note about the set design in this episode. Um, it's really good. I, 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 I liked Nothing in the Dark a little bit better just because there's a lot more detail in that episode given the context of that setting and everything. But I do like that kind of like this big like mobile that's in the background um, behind Raiden. It's like this, it's like a giant baby's mobile. Um, and it's just, it has this fu- futuristic thing. And I put in my notes that like, oh, I like it because it's, it's interesting sec- set decoration because it's futuristic. But I just realized like, is that also kind of just a, a nod to Raiden being this petulant child and incredibly immature and, and uh, like the, in this state of arrested development? Um, if so, that's, that's amazing. Like I just, I just thought of that right now. I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested to know if that's if that's the intention of that. But anyway, um yeah, so so she I think at that point she explains that uh uh oh no no no, she explains it later. So I'll I'll save that for a little bit later. But anyway, Colonel Hawthorne is already kind of like annoyed with this. He kind of takes takes command and he um oh I'm getting jumping around but uh he mentions that um the request wasn't a request to join him. It was more of an ultimatum in that Raiden's like personal driver who delivered the message implied that it was a matter of life and death. Uh Reverend Hughes says that he was interrupted at dinner and he had to run run to find out what's happening. And then that's when Hawthorne starts taking charge. He's like, he just wants to get to the bottom of it. He wants to, he's like enough, enough dilly dallying what's going on. And then Raiden in this fit of, um, uh, impotent, impotent dominance is the best way I can describe it. He kind of tries to take command. He says he's in command here. And what I command is your attention and he says that he's brought them there to all there to settle old scores and it's just amazing to me how much that just completely backfires so severely in this episode it is such in such a satisfying um such a satisfying episode in that kind of cruel twist of fate um twilight zone style and it's it's really really satisfying to me because this is a character who absolutely deserves what's coming to him. He deserves to have this mental break, or he deserves to have this, you know, he he deserves to be punished by the Twilight Zone for being um, so just villainous and such a villain and everything. And it's not like he is like. He's someone who should, has had all the opportunities to not be this terrible person, but he does, he ignores the, you know, the lessons that he should be taught or that he's being taught throughout it because he takes offense to it and everything. It's just, it's a really rich narcissistic character. 
So as he is talking about how he's there to settle old scores, he starts with Mrs. Langsford and, um, she said like, she, she has his number in this episode. It is, it is phenomenal. She's like, it's, it's amazing. You're a multi, you're a millionaire three times over. You walk with Kings and, and you, um, you like know world leaders and stuff like that. And yet it's astonishing that such a man can let a high school incident fester for 20 years. Um, and yeah, so she goes on to explain that what happened was that he cheated on an exam and was caught. And when she confronted him about it, he tried to plant his crib sheet on an innocent student. Um, because again, he is incapable of taking responsibility for his actions. He's incapable of recognizing when he is in the wrong. He's incapable of realizing how his actions affect others. And through this sequence, as we get to know like what what has happened, uh, what kind of things that uh, what what happened that br- has brought them here, um, like the court martial and then the uh, uh, being punished for cheating on the exam thing, it's just it reinforces that narcissistic personality trait that Raiden has, and it's it's just such a, such a rich character study. Um, in the Twilight Zone. I really like it. So Raiden, he responds to this and says, like, it's it's amazing that you had no sympathy or compassion for what amounted to me just being a scared boy. And again, the running theme of the episode is just a complete lack of accountability. Um, and how he is just so egocentric that he can't find fault in his own in, in any of his behavior and i i do like one of my criticisms for this episode is that i do like how much detail they go into with the um the high school story but i wish that there was more detail with the court martial and with uh, reverend hughes's uh, backstory and everything which i'll talk about in a bit but those kind of get like kind of brushed aside and we get more detail with uh with Mrs. Langsford's story which makes sense and honestly that's all we really need because we can kind of extrapolate from that how Raiden reacts to other situations in his life but especially with Mr. H- with Reverend Hughes's story I really needed more information but we'll get to that in a second but um it- the high school story just reinforces that he can't find fault in his own behavior, which is what makes his comeuppance at the end of the episode so incredibly satisfying to me because he deserves it. Um, he, he deserves it. He's not a good person. <laughs> um, and so Mrs. Langsford just runs him through the coals or rakes him over the coals because she says, like, well, you know, in order to have compassion, the recipient must be worthy of compassion. And uh, she says, you were devious, dishonest, and a troublemaker. And by all accounts now, you are still dis- dis- devious, you're still dishonest, and I have no doubt that you are still a troublemaker. And it's just, I just, I love Mrs. Langsford as a character in this episode. Like, she is, like, she has the most biting reactions and it is it is phenomenal phenomenal just absolutely great so after that we get reverend hughes uh his kind of moment with raiden 
uh, where Raiden says, you brought a, brought a scandal over my head. Um, and, and that, you know, cost me, you know, popularity basically, or brought like whatever. And, um, and Hughes just responds with, yeah, I brought a scandal over your head, over your head, because even at that time, you had no sense of honor and you drove a girl to suicide. And here's like, here's probably my, my biggest complaint with this episode or my biggest issue with the episode, I should say, is that that story, like that, that piece of backstory just really needs to be fleshed out more. Like there needs to be more detail to that because there, that is just such a, that is such a tantalizing line. And it is such a, just, I mean, it's a big, big line. And there's, there are so many different, um, there are so many different kind of contexts that we can infer from that. I would assume that he was just kind of bully, bullyish to her. But again, we also don't really have, you know, context for when he was like, how old he was at that time. Unlike with, um, with the court martial and the high school stuff, like we know how old he was roughly in those times. We don't know when the, the situation with him driving a girl to suicide happened. And I just, I really wish there was more detail there and more information because that's just, that's such a dangling thread that, that needs more information, um, attached to it. So in his kind of conversation, he kind of sees, or in their arguing, he sees that, you know, it's not really going that well. So he kind of has an outburst. Raiden does. He says, uh, Reverend, you will, you will go to the devil and so will you Colonel Hawthorne and so will you Mrs. Langsford. You'll all, you will all go to the devil literally. Um, and this is when he starts his master plan. And this is when he gets the most, maybe not defiant, but the most, um, angry, I guess. Um, because he is, he's someone who is enacting this plan that he's put into motion and he thinks that it's this devious master plan but as we're gonna find out it's it's going to fail miserably and i love it for that i love this episode for that reason um but i will say that uh before or on my first viewing um i did i did think like i kind of wish we weren't told that it was a hoax up front uh but i understood why and I put in my notes on, on my subsequent viewings that I was wrong in my first viewing. It is brilliant that we were told it was a hoax because, again, it puts the focus on the character of Paul Radin and how terrible of a person he is and, and all of the idiosyncrasies, all of the personality traits and everything that create that create in a, pro, I guess, protagonist um, that we do not sympathize with in his downfall necessarily. Um, but we do sort of cheer it. I cheered it. Maybe I'm just heartless, but, uh, he, he kind of got what, you know, he deserved. So I don't know, but, um, he says, uh, kind of, he, he kind of explains that, um, you know, the world's going to end tonight at midnight. There's going to be bombs dropped at 1230 or, 30 minutes later, we're going to be dropping bombs over there and the world's going to effectively end. And basically I, 
alone have this shelter that will save your lives. And he he says this kind of ominous line, which is where the the title comes comes in uh, comes into play. But he says, "Am I to be the only pallbearer?" And I think that's really interesting, just because he's he's explaining that the world is about to end, and he's and granted it is a hoax. He knows that it's a hoax and everything, but he's stating it in such a dry kind of matter of fact way like yes you know the world is going to end and they believe him and their reactions are you know um are very much warranted reactions um yeah so anyway at this point i was wondering what his game plan was um and it was a little bit murky throughout it but but i appreciate overall like how it played out which i'll talk about in a bit but uh he then re- uh, activates the red alert recording and uh at this point i kind of noticed that all three of his guests are people that held positions of authority over his life and i kind of wondered if at this point i kind of wondered if uh, if it's a case of leaders, leaders in his life just failing him, or if it was a case of him just never being salvageable. Like, I didn't know if he was unteachable or not guidable or just not able, able to take orders or anything, which I think is the case because he is a narcissist, like textbook narcissistic behavior. And, um, what I love most of all about this episode, and it's what we're getting into here in uh, as I as I go through the review, is that I think that there is a level of brilliance, specifically in the way that Raiden enacts his entire plan, and this is a plan that has been gestating in his mind for decades at this point, and he does it all based entirely on the assumption that these three people are like him. He assumes that he will scare them deep enough so that they will beg to be included in the shelter. He assumes that they value their own lives more than anything else on the planet, and he assumes that it's all that they have. But what is amazing to me is how their immediate reaction to this is not to save themselves is not to is not to do this human uh this cold like reaction of of self-preservation their reaction is literally like okay well we got to get out of here and we need to go die with our loved ones and like reverend hughes says i must get to my wife and this is what kind of breaks that moment and um i i i love it i love it because he goes to the door and then raiden uh, doesn't believe him. He's like, you're more concerned about yourself than you are with your wife. And Hughes kind of reacts to that. And he says, if I'm going to die, it'll be with someone I love. And I've got to say, Gage Clark gives an incredible performance in this scene because he's playing it with fear. He is, the character is incredibly afraid at this moment, but we know that it isn't fear of the bomb necessarily. It isn't the fear that Raiden wants him to have. It's not the fear that Raiden orchestrated or anything. Instead, it is a fear that, like, first of all, it's fearing for his wife. And 
just the fact, and this is just so like, it's, it's heartwarming in a weird way, but he doesn't want his wife to die alone and he doesn't want to die without her. So immediately his reaction is, I've got to go to my wife. Like I've got to get to my wife. That's it. Um, and Raiden, his reaction to this is to just kind of be like, no, that's not possible because I don't understand. Like that's, that's not a thing. Like that's very theatrical and uh, how theatrical of you, but we all know that you really only care about yourself. Um, right. <laughs> and he demands that he tells the truth. And then he uses like, if I say that it would be, if it's the last thing I say, I will have said, I would have left this earth on a, an, on a complete falsehood. And, I just, I love that back and forth because it just, again, reinforces that fact that Raiden doesn't and is incapable of understanding human connection and emotion. Because again, he thinks these people are like him because his entire world is based around his perception of himself and his own experiences. He has no capacity for empathy and no capacity for for accountability or uh, anything that anything that reflects poorly on himself or reflects negatively on himself so he just assumes that everyone else in the world is out for themselves and has no capacity for human empathy and there therein kind of lies the tragedy of Paul Raiden because again he's incapable of finding fault in his actions and when people confront him with faults of his or or admonishments of his behavior and everything, he will twist every single example of negativity that's thrown at him. He will twist it around in order to shift blame off of him and onto others. Because again, he is only interested in himself. He assumes everyone is as cold and heartless as he is. And uh, it's just, it's it's so... It's so great in terms of writing and characterization and everything. Um, so, yeah. So, Mrs. Langsford asks that they be let out now because maybe they can make it home in time. But Raiden, he just, he's like, no. Each one of you has attempted to destroy my life at some point. And, again, that line is fantastic because it is another key insight into his psyche and his disposition, his position, his perspective, everything. Because he views consequences for his behavior as attempts to destroy his life, he did not. He did not take an order from uh, from a commanding officer in the war, and people died because because of it. But he was court-martialed and dishonorably discharged, and that is an attempt to destroy his life. He was caught cheating on an exam and uh, tried to pawn off the 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 crib sheet onto an innocent student and got caught with that and was admonished for that but he thinks oh no I was just a scared kid you had no right to tell me that what I did was bad and he you know, pushed a girl to suicide and the reverend brought that scandal to everyone's attention and how dare he bring the actions of of Raiden uh into the public eye um, yeah, because, you know, that's, he's, he's, feels like he's impervious to punishment and he's just so incapable of taking any kind of responsibility. 
And that's just such an interesting insight into the character. And so kind of his master plan at this moment, he he kind of brings it out and says, I I have this. He, he basically says that I have the only place that you will be able to be safe from in this nuclear holocaust. You, the world is going to end in the only way that you guys will be able to survive it is if you beg for my forgiveness right now. You, and if you have to get on your knees and beg, so be it. Um, you will, you will, um, you, I can't remember what, uh, what he says exactly, but basically he wants power over them and he wants, he wants them to feel like he is in control of them. He wants to dominate them like psychologically. And it's because they made him feel small in some form or another um, at some point in his life, which is so interesting to me because making him feel small in his eyes, uh, in his eyes, they, they uh, tried to make him feel small, but in their eyes, they were just calling out his horrible behavior and he was being punished for things that he did that were wrong, but he's incapable of, of recognizing that. And kind of an amazing, like, slap in the face to Raiden is the way that the, the way that this plan completely falls apart and the way that it is very clear that none of them want to spend their last moments with Raiden. Nobody wants to survive in a world where they are just going to be surviving with Raiden. <laughs> um, so they're like, no, we got to get out of here. We're not going to apologize because you're an ass. Um, <laughs> we're going to get out of here, go to our loved ones and die with them. Um, and that's just, it's amazing. It's, it's really good writing. And so he says that he thinks that they're either blind or stupid, um, specifically because they won't apologize to him and they won't play his game. And here's something that I find really interesting and, and fascinating to me. It's that this episode plays out like the inverse of the shelter. Um, it just feels like these two episodes are companions to one another in a, in a lot of ways. The shelter was an about was about an attack that never came, which caused the ugliest qualities of neighbors to come out. And those neighbors demanded to be let into his shelter and they were fighting for their survival. They were fighting to try to push their way into the shelter so that they could have a chance to survive Whereas One More Pallbearer is about an attack that is a hoax and is not, you know, authentic, um, which is created by the owner of the shelter, who then is demanding that it, it drives him to the point of being crazy, and he demands that the people that he has brought there want to stay like he demands that they that they beg him to stay there but it's the inverse of the shelter so they don't want to stay <laughs> they want to go and be with their loved ones and everything and it's him that kind of loses it and and goes insane it's i find that to be really really interesting that these two episodes exist in the twilight zone and that i think that they're they're incredible um I, I don't want to say reflections of the time because I didn't exist in that time. <laughs> I don't know. But it just feels like th both of these episodes feel like two sides of the same coin that serve as an interesting timestamp of 
a very scary time in 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 U.S. history. Um, yeah. So Raiden then uh, opens the door and he just he says like, "Hey, you guys will be back here in five minutes. Um, you'll be back for your salvation." He goes into this just huge theatrical thing where he's like you can either go up there and see the destruction and with your own eyes and see all the all the um all the rubble and everything and the radiation and all that or you can stay down here and watch it on my flat screen uh, or watch it on my projector um and see how cool it is and everything um and it's just it is so interesting to me because he is such an ugly and hateful person um which i just <laughs> this is this is a complete tangent completely unrelated but i put raiden is an ugly hateful person and that reminds me of the simpsons uh there's a line where uh ned flanders is going kind of losing his school and like yelling at everyone and he looks at mo and says you are an ugly hate-filled man and uh, Mo says, whoa, whoa, I may be ugly and hate-filled, but what was the last thing you said? Um, anyway, I thought that was funny. So anyway, so Raiden is just this ugly and hateful person. Like, he thinks that they're throwing their lives away. Like He can't even comprehend the fact that they want to be with their loved ones because the world is ending or anything. He just thinks that they're throwing their lives away and that that they they have no value for their human lives or anything. Um and it's just, it's, it's so great <laughs> because again, he's a narcissist who lives in a, in a fantasy world. And again, he is a villain through and through. And I love that this episode takes a villain character, makes him the protagonist of the story, and then gives him his just desserts in such a unique and interesting way. And again, Mrs. Langsford has just this brutal, brutal, like, monologue where as they're about to go up the elevator, she says, you need to, like, um, you're going to be here all alone. Use mirrors uh, so that you can keep your sanity and that you can be uh, surrounded by, you'll be surrounded by Raidens. And it'll be fitting because you live in a fantasy world and that'll be a fantasy for you or whatever. And it's, I just, I love it. I love the just bitingness of that. It is so great. And I love that moment that that's kind of, I don't know if that's necessarily what breaks Raiden, but when the elevator is is ascending, is going up, he kind of just looks up at the ceiling and he yells, um, he first says it's not a fantasy and then he just belts it out. He screams it's not a fantasy. And that's such a good introduction to the madness that we're going to see in the closing scenes. But it's also played like incredibly well by Joseph Wiseman. Um, and again, it's that petulance that feels like it is he's he's flailing. It's like he's having a small like inner tantrum um, that he's trying to tell them, like he screams, it's not a fantasy, um, because they have won, they, they've beat him out. Um, and he didn't get what he wanted, which was their just complete supplication to him. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And then we get the just really fun, fun or interesting kind of end scene in the shelter or one of the end, the last scene in the shelter, basically, 
where he's alone and he's hearing the alerts and he's seeing the explosion on the screen. And this is just like his low point. What? Well, his low point before his lowest point, because his revenge, his plan for revenge, this master plan has completely failed and he is completely alone. And then he goes up and we just see the destroyed city. And I like, I was like, wait, what? Like, like it blew my mind a little bit. I was like, wait, what happened? Like, how is, is it real and everything? Like, I was kind of wondering like what it, like what was happening. And then we get the kind of callback to the fountain at the beginning of the episode. Uh, we see the fountain intact or no, no, no. We see the fountain in the rubble and in the aftermath of the bombing. And then it fades into the regular, you know, uh, fountain image outside of Raiden building. And we see that Paul Raiden has just completely gone insane. He believes that he is the last person on earth. Um, he's crying. He's, he's trembling. He's, he's afraid. He's, he's terrified. Um, and then a policeman stops and asks him if he needs a ride home. He, you know, he's trying to like get him to snap out of it and everything, not knowing who he is. And again, this is a really interesting um, ending for Paul Raiden because he was this person of stature, this person who had everything, multimillionaire person, and now in just the matter, in, in just a matter of like half an hour or however long uh, the episode, uh, like the storyline takes place in the world, um, in a very short amount of time, he has now lost everything in terms of his sanity and his his stature and that that's reflected in the policeman not recognizing him kind of treating him as if he is you know a a vagrant of some kind um and i thought it was just uh i just thought it was really interesting like this is a millionaire who walks with kings at his lowest point and he's incapable it's because he is incapable of learning from his actions or adjusting his behavior or just being a decent person. And he keeps like mumbling. Is there nobody? Is there nobody? Because he thinks it's, he's the only person. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. And it, like, yeah, uh, it's, it's fantastic. And then we get the, uh, closing narration from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. <laughs> Mr. Paul Radin, a dealer in fantasy, who sits in the rubble of his own making and imagines that he's the last man on earth, doomed to a perdition of unutterable loneliness because a practical joke is turned into a nightmare. Mr. Paul Radin, pallbearer at a funeral that he manufactured himself in the Twilight Zone. And I really like that closing narration because it is very clearly explaining you know, the themes, the morals and everything, the just desserts that are doled out to, uh, doled out to Paul Radin. Um, so overall, I thought this was a spectacular episode, kind of studying the darkest corners of an egotistical character. And I'm not going to get too much into this, but it just feels like having seen this after, you know, we've gone through, like I'm, I'm recording this July 27th, uh, 2022. I mean, 2020, uh, 
2020, we had, you know, pandemic and everything, global pandemic, all that throughout and social media just in general. But throughout all of that, the kind of common thread I had was people not being able to reconcile. In in my experience, there, there were certain people and certain people in positions of power who exhibited these exact character traits. They could not they could not uh they could not take be accountable for their actions they could not be accountable for the people that they support's actions they could not be they could not take criticism in any in any case and because everything is amplified by social media and everything it became a whole like mess so like when i say like oh this is narcissism this is narcissism and everything it's like it's because that it's because as you know a culture we have experienced narcissism um at a much much higher rate so it's like i see the signs of it all the time and to see it done so well in this episode is just is fantastic it hits the nail on the head um yeah so it's it's absolutely great um so um i have a couple really i only have one a uh, piece of trivia because the other things I kind of uh, um, already went through <laughs> throughout the review. Uh, but yeah, the only piece of trivia is that apparently there was an earlier draft of the script um, that was uh, that further detailed what was behind uh, Raiden's grievances. Um, I got this from IMDb. Um, in uh, Colonel Hawthorne's case, I'm just going to read this. Raiden appealed appealed for air cover and artillery support Neither was available, or so Hawthorne claimed, because he intended uh, for Raiden to lead a diversionary assault. This was ostensibly so Hawthorne himself could turn the enemy's flank, yet Raiden charged uh, Hawthorne with attempting to get him and him alone killed because Raiden was in love with Hawthorne's daughter. It goes on and on and on. But I'm glad that they kind of kept that condensed to what we got, because even though it is fitting with the character, it is a little too much. Like it's, it's too much story for something that is basically supposed to just exemplify the character trait of Paul Raiden as this narcissistic uh, person who cannot be held accountable for his actions. Um, see, <laughs> uh, see everyone on January 6, 2021 at the Capitol. Um, and then the other piece of trivia in connection with that is that there was more information in an earlier draft about Mrs. Langsford's uh, kind of case with him. Um, I'll read this as well. She and Raiden's mother were close friends for many years until, uh, until Mrs. Langsford fell in love with Paul's father, who turned her down to marry uh, Paul's, who would become Paul's mother, uh, because she hated Paul's mother or so Raiden claims, Mrs. Langford seized every opportunity, uh, which presented itself to create misery for Paul. Such included rigging the fateful exam, which according to Raiden, she actually wanted him to cheat on just for the petty thrill of catching him in the act. Um, yeah. And, and apparently he also, uh, he also, uh, says that the quote unquote innocent student that he tried to frame was actually the school bully and he was doing something, 
he was doing something good um, <laughs> uh, for for the greater good and everything. But then apparently in this earlier draft, um, he pulls a gun out and shoots all of them dead uh, just before the fake Armageddon happens, uh, which is a really weird, like, I don't, I'm surprised by that. Like, I don't know how well that would track. Like, I don't know how, how well that would play out with it, but, uh, in it, but I'm glad that it was, you know, reworked and revised and everything and rewritten. Um, but again, again, there's no detail about the, about the Reverend and about the girl that he, he pushed into suicide. Um, so even in an early draft of the story of the, of the episode, it doesn't, it doesn't really do much there, but anyway, um, that's my review of, um, one more Paul Bearer. I really liked it. Um, I really liked the performances. Um, uh, was it Joseph Wiseman? He was, he was fantastic, especially when he gets like that theatrical, like, like, oh yes, you'll, you'll, um, beg for me to come, you'll beg to be let back in or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. It was, it was, it was a really good episode, surprisingly good. And, um, I really enjoyed it. So that's one more Paul Bearer. Um, I am going to now, uh, wind down the episode with my thoughts, my spoiler free thoughts on the human equation, which is science fiction theater season one, episode 25. And I'm going to play the intro music for that here now. So The Human Equation originally aired on October 15th, 1955, and it stars uh, uh, McDonald, uh, Carrie, Gene Byron, and Peter Adams. It was directed by Henry S. Kessler and written by Norman Jolly, and I'm going to read the plot summary courtesy of IMDb. Researchers studying new antibiotics are finding themselves accused of uncharacteristic behaviors, which they can't recall. Could the ergot-driven compound be uh, affecting their brains? And so, uh, as is such with science fiction theater, um, this episode begins with a demonstration from host Truman Bradley. He does two different kind of... uh, scientific things or, or he not really scientific things, but he does two, two demonstrations. One is that he has this, uh, telephone switchboard that like operators back then used to connect calls and everything. And he demonstrates what would happen if the lines were crossed. Like he says, he pulls two cords out and he says, this, uh, this line is a, is a man talking to his fiance. And this line is a man talking to his business partner or something. But what, and when they pull out, when we pull them out of the switchboard, they lose the calls. But what if we put them back in the wrong spot so that this man is no longer talking to his fiance and this businessman is no longer talking um, about something business related? Um, these wires are crossed. And then he 
furthers that demonstration or he furthers that uh, prologue moment with a kind of more entertaining kind of demonstration for lack of a better word um there's a neon light and he uh shorts he short circuits it with a pair or a uh, with a screwdriver and it causes a fire to break out and run through the through the wires and so he kind of leaves us on that uh leaves the prologue on this kind of thought that what if what if our brains could short circuit or what if our brains wires get crossed what could happen and so basically this episode is it's pretty solid it's fine um it is about these characters who these people who are being like the synopsis says are being accused of things that they don't remember occurring and um confused with or being um they're being held accountable for actions they have no memory of and a lot of it is just wildly erratic behavior, um, uh, violence. Um, there's one character who uh, goes to prison for, I think it was a murder. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's pretty intense. And so, kind of the whole the whole episode is trying to find the truth behind that. And I'm not going to really give anything away. Um, although I will say that there was this kid in this episode that, um, there, his mother says like, now that, now that, um, your father's gone, you need to be the man of the house and everything. And then he says something that I'm just like, oh my God, that's so, that's so sweet. Oh, oh, that's what it was. Um, he walked in another scene, he walks up to her cause she's upset over something and he says, do you want to talk about it? And she says, what? And he says, well, whenever I'm sad, you, uh, you tell me, you ask me if, uh, if I want to talk about it. And since I'm the man of the house now, I thought I would ask you if you want to talk about it. And I was like, oh my God, that is, the, that is so sweet and sad and, and real, like that was really good. Um, and it's really kind of, uh, funny because we had like, it's pretty good child acting from, from the actor playing the kid. Um, which is funny because in a previous episode, um, I don't even remember a few weeks ago, I think, or a couple of weeks ago, uh, the child acting was not good. Um, it was the strange people at at Pecos. Um, anyway, um, so I won't really give away much or I won't really give away anything. They do kind of determine that it has maybe something to do with the antibiotics that are being made. Uh, that were being manufactured and it it's kind of an interesting switch switch around I guess because the episode kind of leads you to believe at least from the outset it kind of leads you to believe that it's a competing like a competing scientist who wants the glory of of a scientist's work who they it's implied that there's like a frame that that he framed him somehow but it's an interesting, like, sort of red herring, I guess. But the kind of interesting thing that I want to get at here is that apparently, I haven't really verified this, but um, after the episode, um, they uh, Truman Bradley comes back on and he says something like he usually does at the end of the episode. He says, like, this story was a work of fiction, but it could, you know, science is working on this and everything, so it could be true. Um, but he he says like, you know, this was a work of fiction, but there is something, uh, there are, there are devices, there are, there are, um, implements that can be, 
used or taken, supplements that can be taken that can alter your brain chemistry and stuff. And uh, one such thing is called LSD and, you know, it'll, you know, it'll make you crazy and insane and everything and, and be aware of it or whatever. And I haven't verified this, but I think judging from a review that I saw online, so it's, it's un, like, I don't really have a good, um, citation for it or anything, but, um, apparently this was the first mention of L, uh, of LSD, like by name in media anywhere. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, overall it was, it was a solid enough episode. It was fine. Um, yeah, I don't really have much else to say about it. Um, like I said, it is currently, as of this recording, available on YouTube and on that Daily Motion website. So I'll put links in the show notes if you want to check it out. But it's pretty cool. Um, it's a pretty solid episode. They kind of go through some of the some of the science stuff isn't as engrossing as some of the previous episodes were. Um, but it was still it was still a pretty okay episode. Um, and I've got to say that I'm going to be uh, so, so that's the end of the episode. Thank you guys so much for listening and everything, of course, but, um, I'm going to be kind of sad because I'm next week. I'm not going to be covering an episode of science fiction theater because we have a big episode of anthology coming up next time on the show. I'm going to be reviewing episode 18 of twilight zone season three uh, the episode title is Dead Man's Shoes. And what's interesting about this is that this episode has a remake from the 1985 Twilight Zone revival called Dead Woman's Shoes. But not only that, it has a remake in the 2002 Twilight Zone revival called Dead Man's Eyes. So I have three episodes of the Twilight Zone going through three iterations that I'm going to cover in the next episode of Anthology. Because as you guys know, I like to do the uh, 80s remakes uh, with the corresponding episodes. And I'm very excited because this is literally the only episode of The Twilight Zone to have a remake in the 80s show and the 2002 show. Um, which makes me kind of wish that they would have remade it for, you know, um, the, for Monkey Paws, uh, Twilight Zone revival, but that's fine. I, it's, it's fine. So, uh, look forward to that. I'm going to try to hopefully get that episode out next week. Cause I've been trying really hard to get to release weekly for you guys. So hopefully I can get that. I can keep that going, but I will say that the way that I do these episodes where I review remakes of, of specific episodes, um, in addition to the main episodes is that I record each review separately. So, uh, I'll watch dead man's shoes. I'll record my review of dead man's shoes and then I'll watch dead woman's shoes and then I'll watch, I'll record that segment and then I'll watch dead man's eyes. So having said that, it's going to be a bigger production, but for Patreon, if you pledge at any level, you will get early access to those to those recordings because once I finish my Dead Man's Shoes review, I'm going to edit it, get it prepped and everything for the full episode. And I'm going to throw that on Patreon for early access. So another kind of incentive. And then, uh, of course, I'll do that with Dead Woman's Shoes and Dead Man's Eyes and everything. Um, so, so yeah. So if you're interested in um, in checking out Patreon, that's another incentive. Uh, so patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Um 
once again thank you guys so much for listening and uh yeah let me know what you thought about one more pallbearer and about science fiction theater but yeah i'll be back next time with a big episode but until then thank you guys for listening and i'll see you in the next episode and now enjoy this short clip from our patreon exclusive rss feed for the full clip and more exclusive patreon content such as early access to episodes TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. And I'm not a huge action movie person, even though, sure. I mean, it is like Pixar, but... Um, yeah. I'm mostly excited for the little orange cat sidekick. Yes, Because <laughs> yes. it reminds me of my little orange yeah. cat, Clarence. Little Clarence, the special little boy. <laughs> um, yes. Jess has a cat named Clarence, and I, <laughs> I'm his best friend. Yep. Uh, well, really, a boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, he's he's such an adorable little kitty. Um, he's he's the nicest cat. He's so freaking nice. Yeah, he's so sweet, and he's recognize he recognizes my car and knows when I'm on the, on my way, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com/podcasts for exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes. You can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com/ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.